So I'm go- we're going to start off talking about a, a, a lady named Cindy. That's not a real name, but everything else about her is, is, is true. So Cindy's in her late 50s. She's been married for a little bit over 30 years. She has a couple grown children whom she loves very much. Cindy is, uh, she's gone to church most of her life, and she certainly believes that, that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And she hopes that Jesus is her Savior as well. You see, Cindy struggles with the feeling of always being condemned, of always feeling not, not good enough, like a failure. See, when, when Cindy was young, her, her parents divorced, and her life is marked by a particular moment where her father was supposed to come and pick her up, and they were supposed to spend the day together. And she sat out on the doorstep in the morning waiting for her father to come, and morning turned into afternoon, and afternoon turned into night, and he never came. And ever since that day, she has just always wondered, why didn't, why didn't dad come for me? Why didn't he show up? Am I not, am I not lovable? Could I have said something different? Could I have done something different? Is it, is it me? What is wrong with me that he wouldn't love me? And ever since, she's been racked with these feelings of, of guilt and feeling of unworthy of love from anyone, including God. And on the outside, Cindy seems pretty normal. So she'd be, she, somebody like her maybe sitting next to you this morning. She, she smiles and is polite and extends little bits of kindness to people who are around her, but, but it's all really a, sh- a show in one sense. There's this mask that she wears where she wants to, to put on the idea that everything's okay, but, but inside it's not. There's this aching feeling that she is unlovable. She feels like she's a bad wife, a bad mother, a bad friend, and certainly a bad Christian. It's hard for her to pray because she assumes that God wouldn't want to hear from her because she is such a failure. What if Cindy was your friend? What if she came to you and sat in your office and asked you what she should do? What if you all were out to to coffee or she was at your house on your couch crying the millionth tear, saying, "What, what should I do? I feel condemned all the time. Although our stories may be different than Cindy's, I'm, I'm going to guess that all of us can find ourselves in there sometimes. These feelings that, that God must be disappointed with us. If we've ever had a whiff of ourselves, we know we're not that great, okay? If we've been downwind of ourselves, we know that we've, we've messed up. And we, I suspect, have these, these feelings. You know, we, maybe we ate too much again. Or maybe we didn't eat again. Or maybe we spent more money than we should have again. Or maybe we looked at porn again. Or maybe it's been weeks since we read the Bible or prayed. Maybe we don't serve. 
We're failures. But if we are in Christ, we have promises from God that tell us what he really thinks about us. Promises that remind us that that in Christ, God treats us not as we deserve, but he treats us with mercy and love because he sees us through the faithfulness and the righteousness of his son, Jesus. And this morning, we're going to be getting into a chapter in the Bible that gives us hope, that gives those who know themselves to be unlovable hope that there is a God who would love them still. This morning, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, please join me there. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be Bibles around you. Grab one. Page 944 is where we'll be. Page 944, Romans chapter 8. We're going to be in this chapter for five weeks, Lord willing. Um, And we're just going to kind of slow down in our study of Romans and kind of pick this apart. It's a great text. Just FYI, there's a few people who are, who are taking the challenge to try to memorize this chapter um, sometime before they die, maybe sometime before I'm done preaching it. Uh, it's a good time for you to try to, uh, to maybe put this, this portion of Scripture to memory. It seems intimidating, but there's wonderful truths here. Now, in, as, you, as we turn there to Romans chapter 8, let me catch you up to where we've been. So chapters 1 through 3, we looked at the idea of condemnation that everybody has sinned against their God, and because of that, we are under his wrath. Whether we've been just flat-out rebellious, like let's go to Vegas rebellious, or um, not that if you go to Vegas, you're necessarily rebelling, but you know what I'm saying, like just outwardly living rebellious, or if you're the self-righteous type who dress up and make sure everything looks good on the outside, do this false religious thing, that either way, we're condemned before God. Everybody falls short of the glory of God. That's bad news, because God's wrath is coming against sinners. But the good news is in the last part of chapter 3 where we see that God sent his son Jesus to live the life the rebellious sinners didn't live, to live the life that self-righteous sinners didn't live, a life of perfection, fulfilling the law, and that there the perfect son of God went to the cross as a perfect sacrifice to take the wrath that we deserve, and then he rose from the dead. And now any who will turn from their sin and trust in him, their righteous, their Uh, unrighteousness falls on him and his righteousness now clothes them. So that's who we are as Christians. If you are in Christ this morning, we are clothed in his righteousness and God sees us not as we are, but as Christ is and we're accepted. And that's good news. It's also good news that God doesn't just save us and then just take us to heaven, but there's this transformation. So positionally, that's who we are. We're righteous, but practically we're all still kinds of messed up. So what God is doing is he's changing us. He's conforming us to the image of Christ. He's freed us from sin, and now he's ushered into this new life where we have the Holy Spirit who empowers us to fight against sin. And it's a struggle. Last week, or a couple weeks ago in chapter 7, we we heard Paul cry out, I do what I don't want to do. And then in chapter 7, he says, Wretched man that I am, who would deliver me from this body of death? And Christians feel that. We hate this sin that's still in us. But there is hope. And he gives that hope in verse 25 of chapter 7. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the answer. He is the hope. The same one who saved those who were condemned under God's wrath is now the one who by his spirit sanctifies us and shapes us and secures us and keeps saving us, as Shai mentioned earlier, until that day when we see his face. 
But there's a struggle that's happening now. And in Romans chapter 8, we see these glorious promises about what the Spirit does for us who are being conformed into the image of Christ. And one of the amazing things about chapter 8 is that there's no commands here. This chapter is just filled with promises. It's just filled with truth from our Heavenly Father saying, Children, listen to me. Let me tell you what I've done for you in Jesus. You are safe and you are secure in my love for you. From chapter 8, verse 1, where he says there is no condemnation, all the way to the last verse, 839, where he says there is no separation. From no condemnation to no separation. This is one big, just bowl full of promises that God's children are invited to come and partake of and to know that you are loved in spite of yourself. That's good news. That's why we're going to take five weeks to kind of walk through slowly. So this morning, we're going to be looking just at the first four verses. I'm going to go ahead and read them for us now. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the spirit. This morning we're going to look at two major ideas. The first one is infinitely longer than the second one, all right? So if you get nervous, the first one's longer. Here's your two points. The first one is this, that in Christ, we are free from condemnation. In Christ, we are free from condemnation. That's verses one through three. Then the second one is that in the Spirit, we fulfill the law's requirement. In the Spirit, we fulfill the law's requirement. That's verse 4. All right? So number one, we are free from condemnation in Christ. Verses 1 through 3. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So he begins this, this glorious chapter with a glorious promise. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now for us to be condemned means that God has issued a statement that heaven has spoken And he has declared that all is not well between you and him, between me and him. For us to be declared means that that we we are condemned in our sins. We are guilty of sin and punishment is coming. Again, we've seen this in chapters one through three. That was our standing with God. We were under judgment facing punishment. God was displeased with us. God was angry with us. His wrath was coming. We were condemned. 
But here we receive a promise that in one sense stands out above all other promises and in one sense summarizes all promises. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does that mean for us to not be condemned? We're just going to meditate on this verse for a little bit, okay? So, so verse 1, notice again the word therefore. There is now therefore no condemnation. This points back at least to the struggle that we saw a couple weeks ago in chapter 7. And likely points back to chapter 5 where we saw that from our birth we were condemned because of what Adam did. But I suspect that it goes even all the way back to the turn that we made at 321 where we saw that God rescued us out of condemnation to make us stand in justification, chapters 4 through 5, and to transform us in sanctification, verses or chapters 6 through 8. That God has acted to save sinners. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We should also word us, or notice the word now. There is therefore, therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The word now, it's a small word, but it has, it has wonderful meaning. You see, very often we as Christians, we think about how wonderful it would be to, to be with God in, in heaven. And how true that is, amen? I mean, we sang about it just a couple moments ago. We are bound for the promised land. Oh, what a, what, and that will be a, a glorious day. Can you imagine that day? When we come before God and, and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Would that be a good day to hear those words from our Heavenly Father? The day when faith will be sight, when hope will be realized, when desire will be satisfied. That day when we will know we are accepted by him in such a way that, that the prophet Zephaniah says that God will rejoice over us with singing. Now that'll be awkward, won't it? Amazingly awkward. We'll be like, why are you singing over us? <laughs> We're singing over you. He goes, yeah, but I love you. And I delight in you. And I'm pleased in you. And you're my treasure. Like, you're our treasure. Yes, but you're mine. That's weird and wonderful that God would do that. That will be a good day. Can you imagine that day? Embraced, beloved, adored, delighted in, fully accepted. Paul says right here, though, is that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means that the eternal blessings of being in heaven is ours now because we are in Christ. That means that at this very moment, however dirty you may feel, however dirty you may literally be, if you are in Christ, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1 says that we are positionally seated with him in the heavenly places. That means positionally we are planted in heaven because Christ is there. Our righteousness is there. Where's your righteousness? It ain't here. It's there. It's him. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's where positionally our righteousness is at. But at the same time, we are fully accepted here where you sit this morning, if you are in Christ, hear this, you are not condemned. You are not 
condemned. You are loved by God. You are delighted in by God and accepted by God and fully embraced by God. Now, some of you right now hear that and you're like, yeah, but. How many of y'all doing that right now? I'm doing that while I'm preaching, okay? I'm like, come on, is that really true? That's good, but is that true? It's because we know ourselves, don't we? And sometimes we trust ourselves more than we trust God's promises. This is where you gotta preach to yourself. You gotta speak to yourself. What does God say, though? Well, he says, chapter eight, verse 31, what shall we say to these things? All these promises we're gonna be drinking on. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he also with him not not graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is seated at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That's good news. God is for you if you are in Christ. Did you hear that? God is for you. He is not against you. He is not angry with you. If you are in Christ, he is pleased. Now you may sin, and you very likely will sin, and you may even be sinning right now. But he is interceding for you. And your righteousness, your standing with God, is not based on your performance. It's based on the one who performed on our behalf, on Christ. Now, if you feel uncomfortable with that, that means you're starting to understand grace. Like, that's really, like, weird and foreign to us. Because every other place in the universe, we earn approval. But not with God. It has been earned for us by Christ. And we got to know this. We have to know this because we have an accuser. Do we not? We have an accuser. That's what the Bible calls Satan, one of his names. He's the accuser who comes with his, his accusations. You gave in to lust again? You're not loved by God. You're condemned. You wasted another week of his precious time that he's given you, being all wrapped up with yourself and your fear and your anxiety, again, you're condemned. You have no faith. You didn't read your Bible again. You can only pray for three minutes before checking your email. What's wrong with you? You don't give enough. You don't serve. You're so selfish. And evangelize? You can't even share the gospel with a tree. You're a loser. You ever felt that? You ever heard those words? Something like that? God can't love you. And because of that, he's going to leave you sitting on the doorsteps of heaven just like Cindy's father did. That's what she thought. That's what she thought about herself. That's why she wasn't sure if Jesus was really her savior is because how, how could he love her? If her father's gonna leave her sitting there, God may do that as well. But chapter eight says, there is now no condemnation for those 
who are in Christ Jesus, who is to condemn us. Christ Jesus died and rose and is interceding. And this is why we need promises. This is why you put verses like this to memory in our minds and you stuff them down in your hearts so that when lies come against you and all the guilt comes against you, you've got truth to fight back with. You've got to fight fire with fire because lies are coming all day long. You've got to fight back with truth, with not with defending yourself. Yeah, but this and yeah, but that. No, that ain't working. Jesus is the answer. Jesus says got to know what truth is. This is why we commit to local churches, to where you develop friendships with one another, so you can have people who speak truth into your life, who say to you, listen, you're believing lies right now. You're getting lit up by lies right now. You're being deceived by lies right now. You need truth. And this is how we make it home to heaven. We cling to God's promises. We trust in his promises. It's from faith to faith, from beginning to end. The righteous shall live by faith. Trusting God and his promises is an act of faith. This is how you stay in a tough marriage. Did you believe these verses? This is how you stay pure while you're waiting to be married. You trust in these promises. This is how you go on the mission field, like some friends of ours are going, to places where you could die for saying the name of Jesus. Because you believe promises like this. Did you notice, did you notice the smallest of all the words in that first verse? The word no. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. So what you've got to hear is it's not like there are bad days when God is against you and good days when God is for you. No, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. None, zero, nada. So, so hear this, there is no sin in your past, there is no sin in your present, there is no sin in your future that will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Why? Because his love toward you is not based on you. It's based on Christ. He is our righteousness. That is why we are not condemned. Now that's good, good news. But I need to be really clear right here when we say that there is now no condemnation, that this promise is not for everyone. Okay, this is not politically correct. This is what the Bible teaches. It is for those who are in Christ Jesus. So please hear this. If you are not in Christ, you are in condemnation. You are under condemnation. Listen to this from John chapter 3. We'll start in verse 16, the verse everybody knows, right? Or not everybody, but a lot of people know. God so loved the world that he gave his only son... That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Notice how you're saved through Jesus. Faith in him. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. That's Romans 8.1. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. 
is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So what that means is you don't die with fingers crossed saying, hey, we'll see what happens. As somebody told me in the past couple of weeks when I talked to him about what it means to be a Christian, I said, well, we'll just see what happens when we get there. We can already tell you what's going to happen because Jesus said that you're condemned right now. It's already settled. The only way to fix the account is to transfer your unrighteousness to Christ through faith and for him to transfer yours through mercy. So if we are going to escape condemnation for sin, we must flee to Christ because only by being in Christ, only by being in Christ, does his righteousness become ours and our condemnation become his. Only in Christ can we go from being spiritually dead to spiritually alive. And that's what verse 2 explains. It says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now the word law here. It, it, it can be used in a lot of different ways, but here it's, it's the idea of a principle or a truth or a power. And he mentions two, two different laws. The first is the law of sin and death. This refers to sin's power. We've seen this in chapter 6 and a little bit of chapter 7, that we were its slaves and it worked us unto death. Okay? We were condemned and in bondage to sin. And because of that, we were, well, we were, we were destined for judgment. We would die physically, and then we would die spiritually. That's the law of sin and death. But then the law of the spirit of life refers to the work of the Holy Spirit who made us alive in Christ. We were dead, but then the gospel, the good news about Jesus came to us, either by us reading about it or a friend telling us, Jesus died for sinners like you and me. He rose from the dead. If we will turn from our sin and trust in him, you can be forgiven. We heard that news, and the Holy Spirit took that truth and ripped out an old dead heart and put a new heart in, and we believed. It's conversion. That's what it means to be set free from the law of sin and death by the law of the Spirit of life. The Holy Spirit applied this to our hearts, and God forgave us. Now, why would God forgive us? How can he do that? Is God just, you know, is he just a nice guy? Is God, you know, just, does he say, like, you know what, I'm going to be nice today, and I'm just going to forgive people. There was one famous uh, German poet who died in the, the 19th century, and on his deathbed, he said this when a priest asked him if he thought God would forgive him. He said, of course God will forgive me. That's his job. presumptuous statement. God doesn't just forgive because he forgives. Now, there's some religions that teach that, that if your, your scales are heavy enough or this or that, that God can choose whoever he's going he's to you know, forgive at that moment. But the God of the Bible is different. You see, in verse 3, we see that God sent his own son to do what we couldn't do and to die for what we did do. Verse 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, what does does it mean that the law was weakened by the flesh? So it means that, that, that God's law teaches truth and gives us commands about how to respond to God, but that we don't obey. For instance, um, uh, tonight uh, we're going to be here in uh, Exodus 20, verse 3, the first commandment. Dan Seidenberg is going to preach. Have no other gods before me. All right, so that's the command. 
It's a good command. It's a true command. But we live in a world where God isn't worshipped. And people worship all other kinds of gods. And what's, what's the problem? Well, the problem isn't with the command. The command's good. The problem, rather, is it's with us. That we treat our bodies or our sexual urges or our jobs or our children or our desire to have children or to be married or comfort or our image or our careers, we treat those things as practical gods. We give them our time, our attention, our devotion. We set them before before God, and that command is broken. And in, in that way, the law was weakened by the flesh. We obey our sinful nature and use our physical bodies to sin against God rather than to worship him. Now, the law stands true, but then we stand condemned. But that's where God intervened. God has done what the law couldn't do, which is give life, because all it does is condemn, and what we couldn't do, which is earn life, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. So why does God forgive? He because of what, what you're about to see right here with what Jesus did. This is where forgiveness happens. This is why those who ought be condemned aren't condemned. Because of what we see right here with Christ. That God sent his son. And with, with this talking about him sending his son, you, one thing you've got to know is that, that Jesus didn't become the son of God at his birth or at his baptism. Rather, Jesus was the eternally divine person, second person of the Trinity. He has been the son for all of eternity who entered into the womb of Mary and there added humanity to himself. The eternal comes, the creator becomes like the creature. That's what he's talking about here. And when it says that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh, that means he took on a physical body. Now, he had no sin, but he had a body like sinners do. The New Living Translation actually translates it really well, I think, the idea of it. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. It's that, that idea there. And this, this is one of the most marvelous and curious events in all of history. That the everlasting, glorious, holy God would enter into our world and wrap himself up in flesh. That he would limit himself. He would humble himself. That he would have a body like us. And he wasn't sinful, but he had a physical body like sinners do. And why did he do that? Why did the Son of God become man? Verse 3, for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. Or as some of your translations might say, as an offering for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. So the phrase there, for sin, in the original language is often used to, uh, to speak about an offering for sin. And that's the idea that we have in view here, that God sent his son in a body like people have to be an offering for sin so that sin might be condemned in him, in his flesh. You can read more about this in Hebrews chapter 10, okay? So... Hebrews chapter 10 talks all about this, that Jesus got a body so that he could do God's will, which was to be a sacrifice for sinners. Now, how did he condemn sin in the flesh? Well, he did it in his life and in his death. Now, listen, listen, okay? Because I believe that a lot of the freedom that we need from the sins that we struggle with are found right here in considering what Christ has done and how 
we didn't do it, but how he did. There's power here in Christ and in what he did. So, so hear this. Jesus condemned sin in, in his life. He did that by, by doing what no other human ever did, which was keeping the law. He fulfilled the law where we failed. So where we, where we use our neighbor to further our purposes, he loved his neighbor. Where we speak lies to other people, he spoke truth. Where we are critical and condemning of others, he had compassion on them. Where we ignore those who are in need, he sought them out and served them. Where we distance ourselves from the outcast, he drew near and had a meal with them. Where we grow bitter with people who hurt us, he forgave those who sinned against him. Even on the cross, crying out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When he knew that they would betray him, his disciples, he washed their feet anyway. While the disciples slept and snored in the garden of Gethsemane, he prayed and sweat blood. When his disciples fled away in unfaithfulness, he proved faithful to the end. His life was one big protest against sin. He said, no, worship, I will obey, I will love God, and I will love neighbor. That's what Jesus did. He condemned sin by not giving into it, and then secondly, tied to it, he condemned it by dying under it. You see, it's been said that Jesus was born to die, and that is true. So we just celebrated Christmas, right, which remembers that Jesus came. But we do that with an eye to Easter, the reason why Jesus came, which is to die for sinners and to rise from the dead. Now, our text says he condemned sin in the flesh. That means that in his body, fully God, fully man, Jesus prayed, not my will, but thy will be done. And then he willingly went with the lynch mob who came for him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he willingly stood before six rounds of trials where lies were coming against him. And then he willingly allowed the creature to spit upon the creator to beat him and mock him. He willingly allowed them to put a, a crown of thorns on his head. He willingly took up a cross and walked up a hill called Calvary. And there he willingly surrendered to the pleasure of sin and sinners, which was to kill their creator. But in his death, so much more was happening. So like, this is what the passion of the Christ couldn't capture. We see all, all this that we just described, but, but what he was doing there is that he was condemning sin in the flesh. As he hung on the cross, the condemnation that we deserve fell on him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, what happened was that on the cross, Jesus beat the devil with his own stick. See, the devil, devil's coming like, let's, let's, kill this, let's kill this son of God. Let's take him down. And Jesus is like, all right. Now, this is planned before the foundation of the world and the devil walked right into it and through Christ dying on the sin, dying for sin on the cross, he beats the devil and condemns sin in the flesh for those who will trust in him. 
He set the captives free through his own condemnation. He became sin for us. He condemned sin and left it in the grave, and he rose victorious over it. And now anybody who will look to him will be forgiven and will stand without condemnation. Now, if you keep reading in your Bible in a year plan and you make it up to Numbers, okay, um, there's, there's a story there where Israel is rebelling against, um, against God in the wilderness. And they've been grumbling and complaining and saying, we shouldn't be out here. This is all miserable, God. You're no good. So God sends fiery serpents, which most likely means poisonous snakes. And they come and they, they, they bite the people and some people die. So the people, there's nothing like a snake plague to freak people out and make them draw to repentance. So they, they come to Moses and they're like, help us. And you remember what God told Moses to do? He said, make an image of, of a snake and put it on a staff and lift it up. And anybody who looks to it will live. Make an image of the problem and then lift the problem up. And anybody who looks to the solution will be saved. That is exactly what God has done in Christ. That Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He became the problem. And then he went to the cross. And then he was lifted up there. And then he died. And then he was lifted up through the resurrection. And in John 13, 4, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of God be lifted up. And whoever believes in him, will have eternal life. That's what Christ has done. So now sin is condemned and we are not. So what this means is that when we feel like sinning, and we feel condemned and feel like failures, we must preach this truth to ourselves. We must tell our souls that this is what God says. God says about us in Christ that we are not despised, but we're delighted in. We're not rejected, but we've been reconciled. We're not forsaken, but we've been forgiven. We're beloved now. We're not guilty, but we've received grace. We're not abandoned, but we've been adopted. We're not vessels of wrath, but we are vessels of mercy. So this morning, I want to ask you, do you, do you underperform for God? Do you underperform even for your own standards? I mean, have you already broken your you know, your New Year's resolution? Maybe, maybe not. Do you feel like, though, that you're unworthy of his love, like you're a failure to his laws? Do you fall short of his glory? Of course you do. But who else does Jesus come for? That's who he came for, for people like, like us. He came to condemn sin and to save us from it. And the last thing I want us to just notice here in these first three verses before we move into this last part and then think about, okay, what does that mean when I leave here and go out into everyday life? The last observation I want us to make is, is how the Trinity works together in these verses to bring us salvation. Did you notice that in those first three or four, first four verses? That the Father sent his Son to condemn sin, and then the Spirit set us free from sin so that we could walk according to his power. The Father sent the Son, and then the Spirit set us free and applied the work of the Son to us. You see this all over the Bible, is that, that what salvation is in one sense is that, that, 
This Trinitarian God who is forever known satisfaction and joy and delight and love in and of himself, what he does is he reaches down into sinful humanity and he grabs out condemned rebels like me and you through the power of the Spirit and the work of the Son and we are, we are ushered into this Trinitarian love affair that has been going on for all of eternity. And there, there is the deepest joy and the deepest delight and the deepest satisfaction and no fear of condemnation, just freedom to be loved and to be cherished and to give glory and to cherish God for who he is. That's what salvation is. And we see that work here in the first few verses. But what that Trinitarian love does that we are now caught up into is it, it's, it spills out in, in our lives through, through faith-filled obedience that is empowered by the Spirit, which is our second and much shorter point. Second point is that in the Spirit, we fulfill the law's requirement. In the Spirit, we fulfill the law's requirement. Verse 4. So in order that, so God sent his Son to, be con- to condemn sin in the flesh, in order that, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, that's believers, who do not walk according to the flesh, that was our old life apart from Christ, but according to the Spirit. So, so one of the purposes of Christ's coming and dying and rising and condemning sin in the flesh is so that God's children can be a people who no longer stand under condemnation, but now can walk and live in a way that pleases God and fulfills the requirements of the law, which is obedience. The requirement of the law is now fulfilled in us. How is that true? Well, it's true in a couple ways. The requirement is fulfilled in us both positionally and practically. So positionally is what we've been talking about since chapter 3, verse 21, and we've been talking about all this morning that we are justified, declared to be righteous even though we're sinners because of what Christ has done. We've seen that Jesus fulfilled the law for us. He obeyed it perfectly. He died as a perfect sacrifice. And now through faith, we are united with him and his obedience to the law is credited to our account. So though we fail daily, Christ never fails and he is our righteousness. And because of that, the requirement of the law is fulfilled in us positionally. We stand not condemned, okay? And that is the backdrop for the rest, really, I think, of the, the, particularly of next week and all of the application and all of the ways that we seek to live this out. So those, those first, you know, 35 minutes that we just walk through all of that, that is, that is what pushes, pushes on us and produces life. It's this, this mountain of truth of God's work and what he has done that pushes and is empowered by the Spirit, pushes God's people out in obedience and in faith to do what the law requires, which is the practical side, the actual side. So the righteous requirement is fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. So what that means is, is as Christians, we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk to live, to do things that are pleasing to God, specifically what the law commands. And what is the requirement of the law? Well, the short answer is love. It's love. 
Remember in Matthew 22 when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? And he summed it up with, love God and love your neighbor. On these two things rest the law and the prophets. Galatians 5.14 says, the whole law is fulfilled in, fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So this is why I take this as practical, as actual, is because you're going to see, and I'm going to read it again in, in, in chapter 13, it's going to talk about fulfilling the law means to love other people. Romans 13, we read this a couple weeks ago, but verse 8 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So there is a very real sense, hear this, that as a Christian, because of the power of the Spirit, you are able to love other people now. In a way that we just were not able to do before. And this is what it means to fulfill the law. And Christians, again, are empowered by the Spirit to do this. We need to notice the Spirit here. It shows up 19 times in this chapter. 19 times the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God who lives in us. Now, there's been some confusion about the Holy Spirit. Listen, he's not some just energy or force or feeling or you get the ghost. and You know, like that's not just what, what the Spirit is. He is the third person of the Trinity who has eternally existed, who now, as Christ, the second person of the Trinity, came and dwelt among us in sinful flesh. Now the Spirit comes, the Spirit of Christ comes and dwells within God's people to empower them to love God and to to love others. And what comes out of us, that love, is what the Bible calls fruit. It's what's produced in our life. So when we hear that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled in us who walk according to the Spirit, we need to understand, and Shai pointed this out to me yesterday, that this is a really liberating statement. This is not meant to just make you feel condemned, like, oh gosh, I don't love anybody well. Yeah, but don't forget verse 1, okay? But the truth is that now because of the Spirit, you can love other people. Because you're free from the power of sin and the condemning power of sin, which causes us to draw back and not to reach out in love. We're free from that. This is a very liberating verse. Now, we're going to think more about what it means to walk in the Spirit and all of that next week. But in our last couple minutes, I want us to think about two examples from our daily life that you will probably face maybe this week um, and how these truths of verse, verse 1 and verse 4 kind of fit together. What it means that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus and now that we walk according to the Spirit and fulfill the law. So let's take, let's take, uh, we're going to stick with Cindy, okay? Um, Let's take one one of the things that she struggled with, which was fear of man. Okay, fear of man. You know what I mean when I say fear of man? Um, Not like fear of people, well, not fear of like, well, I guess it shows up in a lot of ways, but the fear of what other people think about us, um, that they might hurt us, these kinds of things, fear of man. So she, she wrestled with this, okay? Now, she, she knew Proverbs 29, 25, which says, the fear of man is a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord is safe. And she knows that's true because she sees it as a snare in every area of her life. So for instance, she, she tells little lies and sometimes big lies 
because she wants to make herself look better. She wants to present herself in a particular way that isn't really true because she doesn't like who she really is. And she won't invite other people into her life or into her home because she feels like she doesn't have enough to offer. And she also feels like if they get close enough that she is going to be rejected again. And she's gone through seasons of, of overcommitting in her life, saying yes to everything, because she wants to make everybody happy, or undercommitting where she won't do anything because she's always worried she's going to mess it up and disappoint everybody. It's two sides of the same coin, right? Now, how does Romans 8.1 free her to do Romans 8.4? How does not being condemned free her to love others by the Spirit's power? Well, to, to help Cindy, and I suspect help ourselves, you got to get under what's going on there in her life. She is, she's insecure and she's fearful. And we all have that in, in differing degrees. But the reason is because her Savior is terrible. Her practical Savior is terrible. Her functional Savior is terrible. You see, she's been looking to people to make her secure rather than Jesus. She's been looking to other people and what they think about her to give her peace, to give her joy, to give her freedom, to give her life, to make her feel good, to make her feel accepted. All of those things are things that God ought to do for us. So for instance, why does she lie? Or why do you lie? Or maybe you call it shading the truth. Or maybe, you know, telling part truths. But why do we, why do we leave out details? Why do you, when somebody calls you to come and do something, rather than just telling them, listen, I'm really tired and, and I, I don't want to hang out with anybody right now, why do you make up some lie about, oh, listen, you know, my aunt's in, or just whatever it is that you make up? We do that, don't we? At least I do that. Maybe I'm the only one confessing sin this morning, but I, I, I do those kinds of things. I'm tempted. You know why? Because I'm worried about what other people think about me. Just like Cindy. It's why we hide our sin. That's why we often don't confess our sin fully and deeply and clearly. Is because we figure we can shade a little bit and not really let anybody know how bad we really are. Because if we did, they would reject us, right? We want to protect ourselves and guard our image. Because in this, this section right here, Tim Keller helped a lot on he said, because in that moment, we see that we have an idol that we love more than Jesus. And that idol is our image. It's others' approval. We feel that if, if people will approve of us, then things will go the way that we want them to go. Life will be easy. I won't get hurt anymore. If I can control people, either by lying to them or putting on this mask or whatever it is, then, then I won't be hurt, and I'll be free, and I can experience life as I really want it to be. But all of that focus is on other people and on self rather than on God. And it's not free. It's bondage. That's slavery. To always be worried about what everybody thinks. That's straight bondage. And, and it, it just compounds the problem. It makes it deeper and darker and deeper and darker. Tim Keller says human approval can become a functional savior. 
You see, we think that if, if people approve of us, things will go like we need them to do. And Cindy thought that if she could just stay away from loving people and not really show herself or not really confess sin or not really let people in, that she'd be able to escape pain. One of the things that really helped her was realizing, first of all, that you live in a fallen world and you're going to get hurt. People are going to hurt you because they're sinners and this world is going to hurt. But if we're in Christ and he is our righteousness, then we're free from worrying about what everybody else thinks about us. So we've got to ask this question, is Jesus my righteousness or are other people's opinions my righteousness? Because if Jesus is your righteousness, you are free to be used by God. But if not, your identity and security will always, you'll always need to be attending to it. And when somebody tries to criticize you, you are, you're going to just, it's going to devastate you. But when we understand and delight and rest in the fact that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, then you're free to love others. You're free to serve others. Because in one sense, it doesn't matter what everybody else thinks. Because your audience is now him. Because your righteousness is there. And you know that God sees you in light of Christ. You are now free to love other people. And if they hurt you, it hurts. But you have a place to go. You have a refuge. And you have other brothers and sisters who can, can help you. We're free to let them see into our lives and know if we get hurt that ultimately I am accepted by Christ. And what that does is that frees you to fulfill the law by loving others. Because then you're free to speak truth to others. Some of you are terrified to speak truth to other people. You're always like, hey, things are great. Good to see you. Hey, happy go happy. I got my Christian face on. You know, we love Jesus. Like all this kind of stuff. But we don't really speak truth about what's actually happening in our lives. It's because we fear people. But in Christ? And, and by the way, you can't love people like that. And you can't be loved like that. So if you, lo- you feel lonely, sometimes it's because of that. But the freedom in Christ it sets, us, it sets us free. We're free to open our homes and hospitality because it's okay if people see our messed up lives because seeing Jesus is more important. There's freedom to admit your failing and confess sins. So Romans 8, 1, the fact that we are accepted by God frees us to love others and not be paralyzed by the fear of man. The second one, which is also much briefer, is, is the idea of forgiveness. See, another thing that Cindy struggles with is, is forgiveness. See, she knows Ephesians 4, 2, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ Jesus forgave you. But if somebody hurts her, she doesn't want to let them in. She wants to keep them out because she doesn't want to be hurt and also because she wants them to feel a little bit of the pain that she's felt. She wants them to know what it's like to be forgotten or forsaken or betrayed. And what it does is it turns into bitterness, which makes her heart cold. And at the same time, stirs in her a self-righteousness, where now because she's right and they're wrong, she sees everybody through that lens. It's, It's crippling to her. She returns evil for evil. But one of the things that has helped her is Romans 8.1, that she knows that she is... She has been forgiven much. 
And the more that she comes back to the fact that she was condemned and what that looked like and how much Christ forgave her when he was on the cross, how much he did for her. When she goes through a list like that one that we read earlier where he did everything that she didn't do and she sees that he is good and that he does good and that he died for sinners, the more that she meditates on that, it humbles her and frees her to extend forgiveness to people who have hurt her frees her to love them. And we've seen some amazing transformations in her life. And she's not home yet. She's got work to do, and she would say that herself. She's fine with us sharing all this because her name's not really Cindy, and you don't know. Um, but but this, is, this is where a lot of us are, that we have these things that we battle in our lives that keep us from loving others. The fact that we are not condemned in Christ sets us free, free to love. Forgiveness is one of the things that you battle. I want to encourage you to read Matthew 18 this, today, this week. Read it again and again and see the picture of the one who has forgiven much and then what the king said to him when he came before him. and said, why would you not forgive others when you've been forgiven so much? That warming of what God has done on our behalf frees us and rests us deeply in Christ. So over these next couple weeks, as we continue to study Romans chapter eight, I wanna encourage you to read through it and pray through it and find promises and tuck them in our hearts, tuck them in our minds so that when the, the accuser comes, that we might speak back truth and say, God, this is who you say I am. That we would know that from no condemnation to no separation, we are secure in Christ because what he has done for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gospel, the good news that in Christ there is no condemnation. We thank you that there is freedom, the law of the spirit of life, setting us free from the law of sin and death. We thank you for the power that you grant your people to live in a way that brings you glory and honor. We thank you for the power of the Spirit that helps us to love. And also we thank you for the illumination of the Spirit that shows us things that we look to rather than you to find security and identity. And God, we pray that we would be a people who are marked solely by delighting in Christ and resting in Christ. So God, wherever we are this morning in this journey, whether our life's a lot like Cindy or not, God, meet us there and move through your word to change us for your glory. We thank you that in Christ we can say it is well because of what he has done. In his name we pray.